You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. On money, called God and Money, and so some of the topics that that assessment may have unearthed we'll keep coming back to. And if you would, if you have a Bible with you, open to Mark, or sorry, yeah, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. So Mark 10, 17 through 27. And always, uh, we have hardback black Bibles on the table back there. Feel free to grab one of those if you need one. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. And in that Bible, you're on page 846. Money is an unavoidable part of our lives. And as much as it creates shame in some, it creates pride in others. Some of you feel really good about your money habits, how you manage your money, your ability to pay off your bills, your ability to pay down your debt, your general ability to keep your budget. Others of you, money creates embarrassment or anxiety, and maybe you feel like you don't have enough money to pay for all the things that you have in life. You're not very good at managing a budget, or you have more debt than you'd care to speak out loud to anyone else. Collectively, we have all sorts of questions about money. We wonder a lot of things. We wonder what God has to say about it, how we're meant to use our money. And according to the American Psychological Association study that was done just a couple years ago, 87% of Americans say that inflation and the rising costs of everyday items is driving their stress. If that's true for you in the room, that means 9 out of 10 of you would say that inflation is driving stress for you. Another study showed that nearly half of Americans say that money has a negative impact on their mental health. And not to be overly negative about money, let me give you one more statistic. When it comes to marriage, money is one of the leading causes, causes of divorce in America. And four out of 10 divorces cite financial disagreements as the leading cause. Money is something that impacts us all and it impacts us deeply to our core. Consider even the conventional wisdom about these topics that are meant to be, you know, kind of taboo for general conversation. Politics, religion, and money. You might ask, why does money belong alongside those other three? If you think about what type of topics these are, these are core level issues. Religion is about what we worship. It's how we bring meaning to life. It's how we make sense out of the world. Politics has become like a civic religion for many people. It is deeply intertwined with our morals and our values, and for many Americans, their political views are a part of their core identity. And what about money? Why is this a forbidden topic alongside of these others? Could it be that we have given it a God-like place in our lives? Alongside religion and politics, money has become central to our identity, which is why the first series here in our sermon in our series on God and money is going to be about worship. It's going to be about money as a potential idol. And the message of the sermon today is that money is an idol that will keep you in bondage unless Jesus sets you free. Money is a competing idol with God. It will compete for your love and your affection, and it will want to be your master. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
And here he summarizes this. You cannot serve God and money. Do not miss what Jesus is saying here about money. He is calling it a master. He animates money as something that will compete with God for your devotion. And if Jesus is this concerned about money being a master, something that we might worship, then we should also be aware of its power in our lives, which is why this message is about money as an idol. It has power. It will compete with God to be your master. And it is not a kind master. It is a cruel master. It will keep you in bondage unless Jesus sets you free. According to the statistics that I read earlier, Americans are in danger of money being our master. It causes stress. It causes anxiety. It leads to divorce. It is core to our identity alongside religion and politics. And many of us are blind to its power. We do not even realize how much it has mastered us. The only way to be free is to submit to a different master. And so we are going to investigate this basic idea by looking at a powerful interaction between Jesus and this young man who comes to him looking for eternal life. We find it in Mark 10, 17 through 27. And so before we jump into the story, let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. So Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that through it, your spirit helps us to see more clearly. And right now, we're asking that you would do just that in the area of money, something that is so common to us all, so common to the way that we just live in this world, and also something that has the power to be a master over us. And we need your help to free us. And so right now, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes, that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We'll pick it up in verse 17 where we read that he was setting out on his journey. This is Jesus setting out on a journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The opening scene of our story here shows Jesus setting out on a journey, and this young man approaches Jesus and notice the three verbs that come in quick succession. He ran up, he knelt before him, and he asked a question. He kneels, he, ru- or he runs, he kneels, he asks. And we're meant to see here in this the man's sincerity in this earnest question he's about to ask Jesus. He really does want to hear from Jesus. This is not like a teacher of the law trying to catch Jesus in some lie or catch him in some teaching. He really wants to know his answer. We find out in verse 22 that he is wealthy. He's a man of great wealth. From Matthew and Luke's accounts, we learn that he is young and he is a ruler, which means he is probably from one of the land-owning families of the region. He has all that he needs financially. He is well within the 90th percentile for income earners, maybe even the 99th percentile. But he is unsatisfied with life. He lacks something. And this is a reminder for us all that money cannot give us all that we need. Modern research has shown this several times repeatedly. A landmark study by Daniel Kenneman from Princeton in 2010 showed that happiness rose as annual income rose, but only to a certain level. Once $75,000, the annual income was earned, happiness plateaued for people. It didn't continue to rise. And if we, rate, if we kind of increase that for inflation, that might be closer to $100,000 today. 
A more recent study by Matthew Klingsworth from Wharton showed some similar things, but also that this required a little bit more nuance, and I won't get into all the nuances, but it still confirmed the basic premise. More money does not fix unhappiness. It cannot give you all that you need to be happy. And one of the things they found that I find to be pretty remarkable is that the effect on our happiness of a fourfold difference in income. So change your income by fourfold, and the impact of that is similar to the effect that a weekend away would give you on your happiness. The rich young ruler, he feels this. He has plenty of money, and yet he is unfulfilled. So he approaches Jesus, calls him a good teacher, further revealing his deference for him, his respect, his genuine desire to hear an answer. And he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And do you hear the longing in the question? It's as if he's saying, Jesus, I have everything that an earthly person could need. I have money and position. I have religion and respect, but it is not enough something is missing. And here is the reality for everyone in this room, and I mean everyone. We are all longing for an answer to the same question. We all want true meaning for eternal life, for life in the kingdom. Now, we may not call it that. We may not understand what is beneath our deepest longings, but what we want is to be fulfilled. And we know that money cannot do it. So whether you have a lot of money or a little, I want you to see that there is something deeper going on with money. There is an idol at play, and it's powerful. And we'll see it work itself out here in the story of this young man. In verse 18, Jesus begins to give an answer. He says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. In response to this man's question about eternal life, Jesus reminds him of God's standards, in particular the latter half of the Ten Commandments. And this young man responds, hey, I've kept them all, even from my youth. And his answer is not meant to be seen as an arrogant response or an ignorant one. He really has kept them. Jesus conceded this point in the way that he continues to respond. This man likely had done all that was required by the Jewish system at the time. But what Jesus wants him to see is that by keeping rules, that does not necessarily mean that God has actually become his master. When it comes to money, this is really important. You cannot fix your anxiety by knowing all the rules and following them perfectly, whether about life in general or about money in particular. Sometimes we think, I'm anxious about money. I can solve it by learning all the money rules that I can use to manage my money. And what we're realizing is that will not solve our deepest problems. It goes much deeper. Let me even illustrate this about some of the rules that we have about money and the way that they always seem to be changing. Evangelical Christians that are 40 and older have been given two basic rules for their money by the church over the last five decades or so. Give 10% and don't go into debt. There's your two rules. And then they're left wondering, well, what do I do with the other 90% of my money? Well, financial planners were very quick to give an answer. Save for retirement, preferably 20% of your income. So there's your three rules. 
for those who are baby boomers or Gen X. Give 10%, don't go into debt, save for retirement. However, the rules seem to be changing. The trend has changed. For those who are 35 and under, according to a New York Times article from last year, many adults 35 and under are saving less, spending more, and pursuing passion projects or risky careers. According to a study by Fidelity Investments, nearly half of people aged 18 to 35 say they don't see a point in saving until things return to normal. The stability that came in the wake of the Cold War led many people 40 and older to save because the future looked secure. The instability that has come in response to global conflict, financial crisis, the COVID pandemic has led emerging generations to save less because they see that one global event could ruin all those savings. And here's what I want you to see. Knowing all the rules for your money much less the rest of your life, and having the ability to keep those rules will not fix your money problems or your anxieties. Now, I'm not saying to be ignorant about money, right? We, we want to know how to use it well. I listen to podcasts about money and how to use it. It's not, we don't want to be ignorant. We want to learn how to use it well. But I've spoken to many people who feel ignorant about money, and their assumption is that if they can figure out all the rules and manage it right, then they will be content but I want you to know that there is a deeper problem than knowing the rules about money and being able to keep them. The young man had kept all the rules of the religious community, and that included their rules for money. And Jesus is about to turn his worldview upside down by helping him see that the problem is not what rules he keeps, but what God he worships. Verse 21, we see that Jesus looks at him and loved him. I love that phrase. I chose Mark's rendition of this story because Mark includes this little phrase that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I want to pause there for a moment. Jesus is not indignant with this young man. He loves the man. He has concern for the man. He wants good for him. Here's a young man who really wants to know Jesus. He runs up, kneels before him, and asks a question, and Jesus looks at him with love. And I want you to hear this as well. When you are seeking Jesus, when you want to hear from him, and he helps you see your idols, he is not looking at you with disdain. He is looking at you with love. He loves you, and he wants good for you, and he knows that your idols will not give it to you. So he says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and, or, and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is telling the young man, your problem is that you have a competing idol. You are worshiping something other than me. So Jesus gives him three instructions. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And the last command there is key. That is foundational to his answer. He wants the young man to see that his money is getting in the way of what he needs most. The problem with money is not having money. Some might read these instructions from Jesus and think that he's teaching that being rich is the problem, that you cannot have money and follow Jesus. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he wants to help the young man see that money is what's getting in the way of following Jesus for him. 
It is keeping him from the kingdom. That is the answer to his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He needs to trust in Jesus, but he is trusting in his money. Jacques Ellul wrote a groundbreaking book called Money and Power in 1984. He's a French philosopher, and as I was preparing for this sermon or this series on money, this book's been blowing my mind, and in his section on money and desire, he writes that the Hebrew word for money comes from the verb meaning to desire or languish after something. He points out that when the Hebrew language was being formed, the spiritual character of money, as well as its power, was already being stressed. For the rich young ruler, we see how deeply he feels his own desire for money. Because in verse 22, he is disheartened by Jesus' response. So he goes away sorrowful, grieving the loss of his desire. This rich young man has two competing desires, and he could not have them both. Either he could give up his desire to follow Jesus, or he could give up his love of money. And in sorrow, he walked away from Jesus and chose to worship his money instead. And at this point, you probably are giving yourself all sorts of excuses. We want to find our way out from this. We might tell ourselves, this doesn't really apply to me because I don't have much money or I don't consciously use money as a form of security or to justify my eternity. But if the relationship between desire and money is as strong as the Bible is pointing out, then all of us need to know that we will desire money. Elul goes on to help us see our own desire for money and that behind it is often another desire. There is often an idol behind our idol of money. And so Elul writes, a person's hunger for money is always the sign, the semblance of another hunger for power or rank or certainty. The love of money is always the sign of another need to protect oneself to be a superman or survival or for eternity. And what better means to attain this than wealth? In our frantic, breathless search, we are not looking for enjoyment alone. We are looking, without realizing it, for eternity. Behind the love of money is nearly always a love of something else. And here's where it comes home to our hearts today. Because all of us have idols that we will be tempted to use money to get. That's what Paul means when he wrote to his young protege in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, you may not think that you love money, but you might love the things that you think money can get you. Now, I gave you that assessment earlier because when I do premarital counseling, I use this resource often called Prepare and Rich to help people assess even for them what money means to them. Within their many resources, this tool is really helpful to see the desire behind the desire for money. And based on their extensive research into marital relationships, what they've found is that money is often a means to something else for people, which can cause conflict in marriage when those things don't line up or they're not realized. And they have this tool to assess it, and they then break it down into four categories, which you'll see on those handouts. Money as status, as security, enjoyment, or control. For example, if you scored high on these, if you find yourself regularly comparing your lifestyle with your peers and feel the need to keep up, 
if when making a major purchase, in your mind you're considering what others will think about that purchase, or if you think that having high-quality things will reflect well on you as a person, then behind the idol of money might be the idol of status. Just like having money in the bank is for the idol of security, or spending money is for someone with the idol of pleasure, or the ability to influence others through money is for someone with the idol of control. And here's what I want you to see, even if you don't think in those four categories. Maybe you have your own category that's emerging in your mind. What I want you to see is that behind your desire for money is usually a desire for something else. The core problem is not that you need money, necessarily. We all need money, right? Because it is the means by which we pay for our basic necessities, shelter, food, health care, education. The problem for us as modern Americans is that we have an abundance of things that we can do with our money. We spend our money on things that go far beyond our basic necessities. And C. Northcote Perkins has this great insight about human behavior when he said, a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. What was once a luxury to previous generations has become so regularly enjoyed by our generation that it feels like a necessity. And so we never feel like we have enough. We always want more, more money or more of the things it can get us because there's always a deeper desire behind our desire for money. And our economy is built on creating a belief that what you have is not enough, that you will always need more in order to be satisfied, that we are deficient in some way, and that each new product will fill the gap in your longing until it doesn't anymore, and then some new product is happy to replace it to fill the newly emerged longing that you have. And you'll see the problem. It never ends. It's, it's ongoing. And so, we need something that will give us true meaning in life. That is what the rich young ruler is after. Eternity. True meaning in life. Following his instructions to the rich young man, then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23. And I love here how Jesus so often will see him debrief these sort of interactions with his disciples. He'll tell a parable or have an interaction with someone on the way as they're traveling. And then afterward, he has to help his disciples understand what just happened because they don't get it yet. And he's such a good leader to take the time to just debrief with them. Here's what's going on. And so that's what's about to happen in verse 23. He says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And we'll see this kind of repeated as he interacts with the disciples. He tells them something, they're amazed and perplexed. So he tells them again, they're amazed and perplexed. So he tells them again, this goes on repeat. One of the reasons they're amazed, though, is because the common teaching at the time was that wealth was actually a form of God's blessing for the good things people did, and that poverty was the result of judgment. And so someone like the rich young man who kept all the rules, who had wealth, would be highly respected by religious leaders. He wouldn't be someone who's left out of the kingdom. He'd be someone who would have like front of line in the kingdom. He's budging to the front of the line, you know, VIP status. And so they're wondering, what, what's Jesus saying here? So he tells them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus wants his disciples to see that people cannot free themselves from the idol of money any more than a camel can fit through the eye of a needle. Jesus is saying something radical for his day and for ours, and he wants us to know it is impossible to free ourselves from the idol of money. Knowing all the rules won't do it. We need a new affection. We need someone to free us. So in response, Jesus continues with the disciples because they're exceedingly astonished, we see in verse 26, and they say to him, then who can be saved? So he looks at them and he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And here's the first thing, the most important thing I want you to hear from Jesus' teaching. You cannot free yourself from this idol by following all the right rules. That is what the rich young ruler thought. You need Jesus to free you. We should assume from the interaction between Jesus and the young man that he not only followed the Ten Commandments, but he followed all the tithing rules. He gave money to the temple. He gave money to the poor. He gave his alms. He did all the things he was supposed to do. He followed all the rules. And today, that would be like an evangelical who followed all the religious rules, came to church, joined a small group, served on a ministry team, read his Bible, didn't steal or slander, maybe even served on a board or some other leadership role. He also followed all the evangelical money rules. He gave 10%, stayed out of debt, saved for retirement, and none of these rules gave him eternal life. They did not satisfy the longing in his heart which is why he is coming to Jesus, running, kneeling, asking what he must do. The answer from Jesus is not more rules. It is not about what we do, but about who we worship. You you cannot free yourself from this idol. You need to be set free by the only one who overcame all the idols of the world, including money. In the Old Testament, there were three highly celebrated groups of people, priest, king, and prophet, all of which were seduced by the power of money. The first priest was named Aaron. His offspring would be the priests who were mediators between God and humanity. But even Aaron, the first priest, was seduced by the idol of money, and he led God's people to form a calf out of gold for them to worship instead of God. Among the kingly line, The wealthiest and wisest of the kings was Solomon, son of David. He oversaw a great time of peace and prosperity in Israel, but eventually he also was seduced by wealth. And as a result, he engaged in the very things that God had warned against when the people were asking for a king. And among the prophets, there were many who misrepresented the words of God out of a motivation for power or security or money. No one, was with able, or no one was able to withstand the God of money, the desire for money, or what money could get them, whether peasant, prophet, priest, or king. And here the rich young ruler has been seduced as well. But Jesus came as the prophet who told the truth, who would not be tempted by all the riches of the world. He was the king who did not extract money from his people, but he came to give everything he had away. He was the priest who would mediate a perfect relationship between God and humanity, and rather than lead us to a competing idol, he would give us access to the living God. Jesus showed us that someone could withstand the seducing power of money, 
The desire for money did not have a hold on him. And as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, he overcame this. And he has now come to free us from that idol as well. The rich young ruler was given a choice. He could worship Jesus or money, but not both. And in response, it says that he was sorrowful. That's the emotion he felt, filled with grief at the thought of being stripped of his money. So instead, he was stripped of his place in eternity. Jesus experienced the same emotion of sorrow at one point in his earthly ministry. It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he would go to the cross. He was there with Peter and James in Mark 14, 34, and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, same emotion, even to death. Like the rich young ruler, Jesus experienced sorrow in the face of being stripped of the thing that he loved the most. The sorrow that Jesus felt was not simply because he was going to die, but because he was going to be stripped of the Father's favor as he took upon himself the wrath of humanity. The young man in this story was in grief at being stripped of his money. Jesus experienced grief at being stripped of his dignity, his purity, and worst of all, the presence of his Father. What was impossible for us has been made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. The disciples were amazed at his teaching. They could not understand how anyone could be saved. How could anyone inherit eternal life? If not through rules and rituals, whether in the area of religion or money, then how? What is impossible for humanity is made possible by God, and it was made possible through Christ on the cross. Because what we need most is a new affection. We need something powerful enough to overcome the power of money. We need someone lovely enough to strip us of our desire for money and the things that it can give. And that is only possible through Jesus. Now today's sermon is not overly practical because before we can talk about what the Bible has to say about our use of money, we need to understand how powerful it is as an idol. Before we can talk about stewardship and generosity, which we will in the next two weeks, we need to talk about money as worship. And here's what I want for you today. To see that money wants to be your master. And then to interrogate the desires you have behind your desire for money. I have heard it said that the only way to break the idol of money is to do the one thing that humans did not create money to do, to be given away. But that would be just another rule if we don't understand that what we really need is another ruler to be our master. And so as we go through this series, let God's Spirit confront you of your own idol surrounding money. It wants to be your master, and it is a cruel one. But the good news is that Jesus came to do what we could not, and he sets us free. You can only have one master, money or Jesus. And my prayer for you is that you do not make the same mistake the rich young ruler made. My prayer is that you choose Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.